0: your Bible, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's see what Pastor Pete has to say to you and me. And before I read, I'm going to pray, Lord, would you help us today in Jesus' name to sense your peace in the storm, to sense your direction, Lord, in the race, to know exactly what it is you want for us. Maybe it's it's a stay-at-home mom who's hearing all this saying, What? I could use some of those diapers, you know, like, what? There's other stuff going on besides my own life, and maybe that stay-at-home mom just needs to settle into continuing to run that race, to loving her kids, to loving her, her husband, to, to, to loving her house, to just being so set free, and, and all the hustle, and to be strengthened. Maybe it's to a, to a dad who's a stay-at-home dad, or a, a working dad, or a working mom, somebody who's on the grind right now and they would be encouraged to keep going. Maybe it's a a family member or an employer or an employee. You're working for somebody and you think to yourself, I just want to be a good servant. I want to be a good witness. I want to be a good, I want to be like Joseph who was a a good slave to to Potiphar. I want to be like Joseph who was a good prisoner to the prison keeper. I want to be a a, a good leader. I want to be a good man or good. Well, whatever the case is, would you instruct us and inspire us today? Holy Spirit, have your way. We thank you for your word, which doesn't return void, but instead accomplishes things in us. It reveals thoughts and intentions. It waters, it renews, it restores, it rescues, it alerts, it alarms, it corrects. Lord, we ask that your word would have its way. Thank you again for all you've done. And we do plead for your wisdom. Lord, give us great wisdom for such a time as this. The complexities are real. Lord, they're real. We don't, want to be, we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be off. We need to know, Lord, where that balance is, where we push the norms, where we push the envelope. In those areas, Lord, where we, we just serve silently. So give us wisdom in our places of business, our places of living, Lord, our places of influence. Bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. First Peter chapter 4. I'm going to read to you beginning in verse 7. We were here two weeks ago, and we're going to try and get to verse 19, but I want to do a little cleanup before we jump into verse 12, which will be brand new. Look at what Peter says in verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. And therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all these things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. And as each of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He goes on. If anyone speaks, man, let him speak as the oracles of God. You're an ambassador. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability. Which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verses 7 through 11 are very practical in nature by way of what our Christianity should look like on planet Earth. Above all of these things, make sure you're adding love, hospitality, humility, good stewardship over the gifts that God has given to you for God's glory. It's so practical, but I want to remind you of the audience that Peter is writing to. He's writing to the church in Rome, and he's giving them instructions on how to live in a world gone mad. As a matter of fact, in Rome at that time, they're experiencing social prejudices and fears of violence rioting and protest, corruptions, rulers that you couldn't trust anymore, and an ever-changing political landscape, while the leading superpower of the world slowly imploded and found themselves falling apart. Can you imagine living in an environment like that? What would that would be so crazy to live in the ruling world government at that time as it slowly impl- imploded and dissolved and fell apart from the inside out social injustices and riots and violence and political landscapes that were changing and corruption and sin and all the, man, that would be so intense. What would you do? And so Peter writes to the church. and says, here's what I want you guys to stay focused on. While the world is slowly burning, while things are getting crazier and crazier, while the end is near, while the days are getting darker, don't get distracted by all of those things but instead focus on what God has put you here for. This is why we study the Bible. Uh, Some people say that it's an outdated book and that it doesn't have any relevance to today's culture, but this book is alive. It's timeless and timely. When I say it's timeless, I mean that it transcends time, and timely means that every word well fit and spoken is to us valuable for our walk today, and uh, that's why we read God's Word and study God's Word the primary way that God has chosen to speak to His church is through His word. God speaks to His church through His word, through His spirit and through His people, through His creation as well. But it's through His word. So if you want a word from God, you've got to get into the word of God. It's that simple. This is what we try and do here. So as we're reading First Peter, man, we can find ourselves. And by the way, I love First Peter. You'll know why in just a, a few minutes maybe. And I love First Peter. it one of my favorite books throughout my Christian journey because it's kind of like a throat punch right to the throat when you need one. And uh, Peter's a good coach, and Peter's a relatable guy. You can trust him. He knows what it's like to be down. He knows what it's like to be up, and he knows what it's like to quit. He knows what it's like to be recruited and have his feet washed by Jesus. And so I can relate to Peter on all kinds of different levels And Peter tells us what we're to be doing in order that we might find ourselves valuable to the end of our lives. And so uh, Peter's gonna tell us what it looks like to live in a world gone mad, a world that's upside down. And the primary message of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, and we decided to go through 1 Peter when we were halfway through the book of Revelation years and years ago, 2019, I kind of just said, you know what, when we're done with Revelation, we're gonna get into 1 Peter. And now nobody knew at the beginning of Revelation that we'd be kind of in an upside down world now. And God knows, and so he's given to us, I believe, the instructions we need out of First Peter for such a time as this. And here's the deal. Write this down. The primary message of First Peter is that you're going to suffer. Okay, life's going to be tough. There's going to be challenges, setbacks, sorrow, and sadness. It's going to happen. As a matter of fact, let me ask a question. Have anybody of you guys suffered here before? Raise your hand if you had any suffering in your life. Okay, raise your hand. Other hand if you're a liar. And if you didn't raise your hand, you know, we all suffered. Every one of us have suffered in one way, shape, or form. So here's the three things I want you to consider. In your suffering, beware of sinning and instead choose to be a servant don't sin when you're under duress and under pressure instead when you feel like picking or throwing in the towel pick up the towel and serve the third second thing that peter taught us as we've been going through this is that not only are we going to suffer and we shouldn't sin but we should serve but we should also choose to be a witness for the hope that lies within us this is so important because as you suffer it's easy to let go of hope of your hope As a Christian, has anybody ever told you, give your life to Jesus Christ and your life will become better than it ever has before? Give your life to Jesus Christ and it'll be easy peasy, lemon squeezy, okay? The reality is give your life to Jesus Christ is the rightest thing you'll ever do, but it's going to be very difficult for you moving forward because we're in a broken world. Suffering is going to happen. And so what God wants us to do is to set aside Christ in our hearts to give people a reason for the hope that lies within us. Number one, don't don't sin, instead serve. Number two, choose to be a witness of hope in your suffering. And number three, choose to be a worshiper even in the worst of times. This is Christianity like 303. You know, Don't you love it when the worship singer sings your favorite song? So good. What about when he sings your least favorite song? I hate this song, you know. I'm gonna go out to the car, you know, this isn't my song. Singing it wrong. It's too high, it's too low, it's too loud, it's too quiet, you know what I mean? You ever have those days? These are your songs. Ah, I don't like this song. Really? 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 Or whatever the case is, or maybe it is your favorite song, but life's upside down for you. Things are difficult for you. Testing is happening in your life. You know, I don't wanna sing. I don't wanna sing. I'll tell you what, singing in your suffering. Is an opportunity for you to worship at a greater depth than you previously had experienced with the Lord. You're going to suffer. It's not optional. It's promised. It's predicted. It's set in stone. So make a decision early on. Okay, when I suffer, I'm not gonna sin, I'm gonna serve. It's a big boy decision right there. Okay, you gotta make it every single day. I'm also gonna use it as an opportunity as a witness for the people around me, for the hope that lies within me. When everything's burning, And I'm also, this is between you and the Lord, by the way, I think it's even more important than serving others in the body of faith, a witness to the people who don't know the Lord. This is something the Lord's working on me in 2021. Just be honest with you guys. The Lord's saying, Luke, hey, make sure you're connecting with me. Everything you do, Luke, appreciate you. You're doing great. Connect with me. It's worship to me. When you're suffering, when you're hurting, gives us practical instructions He tells us that each one of us have a gift. He says to be hospitable, to grow in love. And the reason why I think he gives us these practical gifts is something I've alluded to in the service two or three times today. But in John 13, the disciples gather for the last supper. And by the end of supper, nobody had served one another. They just hadn't done it. They didn't want to do it. They knew it was the custom. Not only was it gross to have nasty feet, but it was a ceremonial norm to have your feet washed, but nobody wanted to be a servant. So Jesus put on the servant's garments. He dressed up like a servant, washed their feet, and then stood back and said, I did this as an example for you. Now go and do likewise to who? God with, oh, rhymes with others. Now I say it that way, because listen, this is crazy. This is crazy. I think Jesus should have washed their feet Stood up and said, I washed your feet, now wash mine. How many of you guys would have thought that's okay? Absolutely. Of course, Jesus. You washed my feet, I'll wash yours. No. Jesus said, I washed your nasty feet. Now go wash other nasty feet. That's, that's what it's all about practical ministry, practical service. And these were the disciples that had been with Jesus for three years, like the, these were the theologians. These were the A apostles, not the B apostles. I mean, these were the guys, and they didn't even want to serve people. They didn't want to serve their neighbor. They want to be nice. They want to be kind. They wanted to be. They wanted to be appreciated. They were concerned about who was going to be the greatest amongst them. If Jesus even said one day, he said, "Hey, you want to be the greatest? That's so cool. Here's how you do it. If you want to be the greatest among men, become the servant of all." This is so awesome. Peter heard all this. Peter knew all this. So when Peter writes his epistle just hours, or should I say years, just a few years before he dies, he recalls, he recounts, he records all of these same similar instructions that he missed the first time. Practical. Each person here has a gift. As a matter of fact, look at verse 10. As each one has received a gift minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Two weeks ago, we went through this, and I actually read all of the gifts out of 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. You can go back there and list those and read them yourself. There's seven in Romans and nine in Corinthians. There's all kinds of gifts listed. I'm going to remind you what I said then. It's not an exhaustive list. There are other gifts that the Holy Spirit gives that aren't recorded in the scriptures. There are gifts that God gives men and women to use for certain times of ministry and purposes. One of the things you should do as a Christian is ask yourself, what are you good at? What do you have effectivity and success in? That may be your gift, your spiritual gift. And also, what stirs you up and brings electricity to your life and brings life to you when you do those things? Maybe it's singing. Maybe it's teaching. Maybe it's serving. Maybe it's ministry. Maybe it's listening. Maybe it's prophecy. Maybe it's prayer. Whatever the case is for you, ask God, who am I in the body of Christ? What should I be doing? Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 13, however... If you do all kinds of good stuff, have all kinds of good things, and you're a servant, but you don't have love, it doesn't even matter. It's got to be born out of love. Love is a verb, but it's also a reality of the heart. It's a condition. And the main problem isn't finding out what needs to be done or even how you're gifted. The main problem in life is denying our flesh and living for God's glory and others' good, choosing to do that daily. Matter of fact, it's easy to get saved. How hard is it to get saved? Like Jesus says, I died for you. Do you love me? Like, I love you so much, bro. He's like, now I want you to live for me. He's like, well, I'll do my best. It's not hard to get saved. It's hard to deny yourself and to become a servant of God living for others. Teaching this to my kids at home, no endemonication, and just to serve others and to do things that maybe you weren't asked to do, but you can sense and discern this needs to be done. This is something that can be a bonus and a benefit to the body of Christ. The reality is, is that we're masters of serving ourselves and we need to be reminded by the Holy Spirit and others that it's better to give than to receive. I've I've shared the same stories over and over, so I apologize. I'm trying to get new stories, but some of the old ones just come up. And I remember about nine years ago, I was in Ashland and I'd gotten asked to do a wedding. So I traveled back and we were living in Newport and I was doing a wedding for some dear friends on a Saturday and Pastor Mark Anderson found out I was doing a wedding in Ashland on that Friday and he texted me and said, hey, do you want to teach this Sunday since you're here? Now, in my heart of hearts, I did not want to teach that Sunday. I was there without my wife and kids. I wanted that Sunday off. I wanted to kind of just chill out and have a day off and sleep in. So I texted them back and said, let me think about it. Immediately after I sent that text, I felt the Holy Spirit speak to my heart and said, I did not give you the gift of teaching for you to teach whenever you want. I gave you the gift of teaching to teach whenever I want Now, I texted Mark Anderson back immediately and said, I'll do it. And I was rebuked by the Lord and corrected. My life is not my own. I was bought at a price. And I'll tell you what, as a matter of fact, look at verse 10 again. I want you guys to see this. This this might change your life. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. You guys know what the difference between a steward and an owner is? An owner is somebody who owns something. A steward is somebody who stewards that which is owned by somebody else. He says that we are stewards of the grace of God, stewards of the gifts. We're not the owners. As a matter of fact, this is what trips up so many people in their Christianity or their misunderstanding of what it means to be a believer is that your life is not your own anymore. God owns you. You are bought at a price Therefore, glorify God in your body. I'll read it to you. This is 1 Corinthians 6. It says this. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God and you're not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. You're not the owner. You're the steward. This will change everything for you. By the way, if you're wanting to make this step, you're wanting to make this commitment, you're not the owner. You're just the steward. steward steward we 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 understand this idea of stewardship <sighs> right now you've given your money to the bank right you all have a bank account you put your your money in there and the bank is the steward of your money who's the owner of your money the government no I'm just kidding you are you are you are you are the government no you are you're the owner of your money and the bank is the steward okay if they lose your money if they, if they all your money's gone they're they're in big trouble they're the steward, you are the owner. You understand? When you get a credit card, okay? You're the steward, the bank's the owner. They say, "We got a bunch of money. We're going to give it to you. You can do whatever you want with it. You can get return on investment. You can you can do it, you can spend it however you want, but it's our money. You're stewarding it." When you rent a house, you're the steward. There's an owner. When you're the homeowner and you rent out your house, you're the owner there. The steward, there's a huge difference. And God says you are stewards. God is the owner. And the reality is, is Jesus taught many times that we're to be good stewards of what he's put us over. Not bad stewards. There's a contrast, good and bad. He said, I'm going to return. I'm going to investigate. I'm going to inspect. I'm going to look about everything you did with the days, dollars, and deeds that I gave to you. Some are given more. Some are given less. Some are given 10 talents. Some are given five. Some are given one. All get graded on the same system. This helps me to understand kind of ontologically or cognitively the way that God has ordered the body of Christ to not just be consumers, but to be contributors. And it's so awesome. Adam and I didn't talk about what he was going to say today. And did you hear what Adam said today? He's like, you know, I'm not going to talk about Costa Rica and Lebanon and all this stuff. I'm actually going to just kind of stir the people up here. Because I think we need stirred up and as complex as 2021 is, it's like, I don't know if I can serve and I don't know how I can give and, and there's so many uh, you know, restrictions and everything's been reduced and all that. It's an it's a attitude. It's a place of the heart. Because if you're not denying your flesh, if you're not saying no to yourself, if you're not saying no to your own life and yes to the life that God has for you, you're going to get in trouble in one way or another. You're either gonna be a small Christian or an unfruitful Christian or a sinful Christian. This lifestyle of self-denial, saying no flesh, not me, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And becoming a servant from the inside out will not only glorify God, will be a witness to people, but it'll keep you from sinning. Your life's not your own. It's, it's God's. It's not your stuff. It's not your money. It's not your body. It's not your future. It's not yours. Now, again, this is a stumbling block for people who don't know God and don't know Christianity. But if you who know the scriptures, when you find relief and release from all these things, it's not mine. It's the Lord's. Everything's the Lord's. It's all his. Galatians 2.20, you can write this down and read it. I like to consider this the power verse because it's 220 volts, it's powerful. Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Man, I know it's not my life anymore. I've been crucified with Christ, and the life that I do live, I live in him. He lives through me. It's not about me. I'm going to give you four things to consider. Here's the four different areas you're going to find yourself. Number one is the non-Christian. Okay, the non-Christian sees themselves as the owner and the steward. This is my life. I get to do whatever I want. It's my body, my choice. It's, it's my, my money. It's my house. It's my deal. It's, it's mine, mine, mine. I get to do what I want. And any return on investment, anything that's given good for me, it's mine. I'm the owner and the steward. Okay, that's a non-Christian belief system. Okay? Then there's the misguided Christian. Misguided Christian says that I'm the owner, but God's the steward. Okay, God's given to me his wealth and work and resources, and I'm the owner, and guess what? God's gonna bless me. He's gonna keep me. He's gonna provide for me. It's the health, wealth, and prosperity doctrine where God does whatever I say to do because I'm the owner and he's the steward. Okay, this is the misguided Christian. Careful, write that down and chew on that later. Then there's the lazy Christian. Careful now. The lazy Christian says that God is the owner and the steward. I'm just gonna let that set for a second. I'm saved. God owns it. And he's stewarding, man. I'm just sitting here eating popcorn. You know, this is so fun. I'm going to watch God do stuff. God wants there to be revival. I'm going to be the first to witness it, you know, eating your popcorn. God wants there to be maturation in my life and maturation in my family and growth and wants to see a witness in my community and wants to see things happen. And Sunday school get get covered and parking lot ministry get covered and hoodie ministry get covered. And and the revival we prayed for revival at the prayer meeting this morning at 8.30. We prayed for revival in our town. And the lazy Christian says God's going to own that and steward that. I just, I just, I don't know. It's not a big deal. Anyways, moving on. The good Christian says that God's the owner and I'm the steward. I mean, trip out. Have you ever had a good employee? I a good employee. You employers know what it's like to have a good employee. They're rare. They really are rare to find a good, faithful worker who's gonna treat your assets, treat your business, treat your resources, treat your livelihood as something that is going to be a benefit to you and gonna be something that he or she stewards well. You own it, they steward it well. And this is what the Christian life is. God owns my life, but he has instructed you and me to be stewards over his wealth, others good, for the glory of God. The goal in this life, is to be a good steward. When the Lord returns, He's going to investigate, He's going to inspect. Now, let me just, I, I kind of I, I left some things on the table two weeks ago, and so that was kind of cleanup from two weeks ago. Thank you for letting me preach that first sermon. Now we're going to get into the second sermon. Verse 12. How many of you guys think that if you live for the glory of God and the good of others, if you become that fourth description, where God is the owner and I'm the steward and you live your life with that regard and you're not the lazy Christian or the misguided Christian or the non-Christian and you do these things, you're gonna have good results coming at you. How many of you guys think that that's true? You do good, you're gonna get good. Raise your hand, anybody. Trick question, trick question. Okay, it's a trick question. I say that because if you do the right thing, not only will you get blessed and have peace in your heart, but you also, according to what the Bible teaches us, will bring upon you and incur difficulties in this life because this world is broken. Look at verse 12. Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Stop right there. Eyes up here. Peter now segues from a very practical pointed uh, instructions for the believers of what to do, what not to do, and how to do it. And then he says, oh, by the way. Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're going through as if some strange thing were happening to you. Instead, rejoice to the same degree that you partake of the sufferings of Christ. Don't be surprised. How many of you guys are surprised when you suffer? You're surprised when you're late to work, you're surprised when your car doesn't start, you're surprised when that person that's going slower than they should be drives in front of you, you're surprised when you get sick, you're surprised when it rains, not in Newport, but you're surprised when things don't go well for you. Whether you're surprised or not, you show it on your face. You show it by your emotions, you show it by your frustrations matter of fact, if you weren't surprised, then you'd be smiling all the time. There'd be no bad days. But in reality, man, there's some bad days. And what that shows in your emotions and your understanding, it shouldn't be this way. Why is it hard? Why is marriage difficult? Why is parenting difficult? Why are relationships difficult? Why is work difficult? I love Genesis 3. Genesis 3 promises us that relationships will be difficult, marriage will be difficult, parenting will be difficult, work will be difficult, life will be difficult. It's all ordered out right there, man. Don't be surprised, but yet we're surprised, aren't we? Read it again. Verse 12. Why would he say, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is right. One of the reasons why we're surprised is because we're trying our hardest. We're doing our best. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves taken on water. We find ourselves sinking. We find ourselves taking steps backward. We find ourselves taking hits. The enemy comes in like a lion, sneaking around. All of these things happen to us, and you have to be able to ask yourself, what is going on? And in verse 12, he tells us, and this is very important, it says, do not think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Stop right there. He says it and gives us what is going on in your life. He says the fiery trial is there to try you. How many of you guys have a different version that says something else besides try? Anybody have a different word in there? Okay, that's great. The word there in the Greek literally means to test you. Don't be surprised when things are tough. Don't be surprised when things are difficult. Don't be surprised when things get hard. It's a test. And there's two primary reasons why tests come into your life. Number one is to identify the flaws and the weaknesses for correction you ever built something before and you just like test it, you like, you know, push on it or you take it for a drive or a hobby or so, you, you know, you, you, you test something in order to identify flaws and weaknesses to fix them. And the second reason why you test something, please pay attention, the reason why things are tested is to show off the strength and the values of the thing that's been created. When a brand new car is rolled out and Car and Driver Magazine takes that to the racetrack and they set up the cones and all the other obstacles and the jumps, you know, if it's a cool car and they set up all the things and they begin to test that car. They're primarily doing it to show off, listen, the strength and the value and the ingenuity and the design of that vehicle. (laughs) Let's just be honest, I hate tests. I hate hard days, bad days, failures by me, failures by others, stupid people, primarily myself. Man, and the Lord says, hey, don't be surprised. I'm identifying weaknesses and flaws within you, not because I hate you, but because I love you. And I'm going to work those things, those impurities to the surface. It comes up again. Have you husbands ever dealt with the same thing in your own imperfections more than once? Like, have you dealt with the same thing like again? It's still there. I thought we dealt with this an hour ago, you know? How could there be more of that within me, you know? (laughs) Ha, ha. Are you in your marriage, you in, in parenting or relationships? that purifying process. Don't be surprised, as if some strange thing happened, but instead God is working in you. We've learned about suffering throughout this epistle so far that suffering creates a witness for us. It loosens the grip of the world on us. It produces faith in us. It brings worship from us. All these things, if those things only happen through suffering, who are you to be surprised when God brings more suffering your way? Your life would be boring without predestined suffering. Now, again, you're not going to hear this on the TV and the faith preachers and the name it and claim it guys. They're not gonna tell you that it's gonna get hard because that's predestined for you. They're gonna tell you that everything's gonna be greater, everything's gonna be easier. And yet, Peter here, looking at the horizon, says, huh. So, right now, Christianity's being oppressed, but I see the future. It will one day not just be oppressed, it will be state ordered persecution. Christians will be pitched and forked and stabbed to the ground and lit on fire. Christians will be burned at the stake. Christians, he sees the future. Christians will be fed to lions. Christians will be mutilated. Did you know the Christians back in those days were taken and they were tied by all four of their limbs to four different horses and then the horses were whipped in all different directions until they'd be pulled apart? Grute, grotesque and diabolical ways of murder. And Peter says, no, I'm not gonna tell you that your best life is now. I'm not gonna tell you that, because it's going to get darker before it gets brighter. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, because it's not about this life. This life is a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. Can you, can you, can you believe you're still alive? Anybody, anybody with me like, no way, I can't believe I'm still here. Look, for real, the amount of people that die every single day in the world, the amount of people that died in 2020 in, in my life alone, the amount of people, and I love you guys. Okay? Some of you will attend my funeral. I'll attend some of your funeral. And Peter and Jesus and God don't want us to get confused when we go through suffering and we find ourselves... As a matter of fact, I want you guys to really see this as a, a love letter. Look at verse 12. He says, beloved. Do not think it's strange, concerning. Beloved. That's kind of an interesting word, isn't it? Gruff Peter... Fisherman Peter, tough Peter, beloved. This is the same word that God the Father used in Mark chapter one and Matthew chapter 17 to describe from heaven, listen, his son Jesus Christ. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's getting baptized. This is my beloved son, listen to him. This is my, beloved literally means the thing that you love and cherish and adore the most. Now let's just go ahead and chase this theological rabbit for a minute here and catch it and see if we can get some rabbit stew out of it by way of definition, would you expose that which you beloved to the life that Jesus had to go through? By way of definition, if you love somebody, would you allow them to be mistreated, misunderstood, to be denied, to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be ridiculed, to be mocked, to be hated, to be embarrassed, to be crucified? Jesus was murdered at age 33. It's very young. And Jesus only ever always did right, only ever always did good, only ever always was kind, only ever always was caring, only ever always was perfect. So if you think that life should be easier for you and better, and I can't believe this is hard and what the heck's going on here, man, what's going on, all this. Jesus was perfect in all ways and was called the beloved of God and found himself mutilated and crucified on a cross for you and for me. When Peter uses this word beloved, I believe he's making a direct connection Listen, here's why this is really important. Because in your suffering, in your sorrow, in your sadness, the temptation to cast off restraint to become a weirdo, to become a sinner rather than a servant is going to be there. And you need to understand something. You are loved by God. You are the beloved. It's not a throwaway word. It's not just a you know, you're the beloved. Three things come from this that I want you to consider. Number one, God can't love you any more than he already does. His love was demonstrated on the cross when he sent his son to die for you. In your suffering, you might question God's love for you. Does God love me? I'm I'm hurting, I'm suffering. I just got divorced. I just got diagnosed. I just got fired. I just, I'm suffering. Does God love me? Look at the cross. God can't love you any more than he already does. Because you're the beloved, secondly, God can't love you any less than he already does. How many of you guys grade yourself on a system of performance? Man, I've had three good days. This is awesome. This is awesome, you know. Hey, Lord, what's going on, bro? You know, got up early. I read the Bible. Haven't done anything stupid, you know. You love me, right? We're doing great. And then all of a sudden you have day four. Oh, no. And you're hiding from the Lord. God can't love you any more than he already does. And God cannot love you any less than he already does. Yeah, but I'm suffering, it doesn't make sense. I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense. If God loved me, wouldn't I not be suffering? Are you serious? Did God love Jesus? Is that his son? Did he love him? Does he love him? Did Jesus suffer in this life? And that'll help you in your suffering when you look at your life and say, Man, I got the short end of the stick here. What the heck, bro? In the depth of suffering, even in this room, or those watching online, the amount that's happened to him. you you need to understand that you are the beloved don't think it's strange he can't love you any less he can't love you anymore and because you're the beloved that love for you is protected in him he is love this gives us a firm foundation and a platform to move forward whatever you're struggling with right now whatever you're dealing with maybe it's an outside influence maybe it's an inside turbulence a challenge of some sort, maybe a challenge of the mind. Peter rebukes us, he exhorts us, don't think it strange. You're being tested. Verse 13, he tells us what to do. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. How many of you guys, when the suffering gets turned up, you just ask for that new party playlist? Like, turn it up! You know. I mean, how many of you guys didn't sleep, put on dance? And he's like, suffer, damn, suffers, like, you know? I'm going to read it again. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. I'm just not there yet. I'm just not there yet in my suffering. I don't rejoice yet. But I read scriptures like these, passages like this, and I understand the end from the beginning. I understand my future. And I say, okay, okay, wait. If Christ suffered for the joy set before him, I can rejoice. The world has no hope but that which is happening in the immediate experience. The world is absolutely lost. It is absolutely addicted to the immediate and the now. Christianity has a long-term vision, an eternal future. Moses said in his psalm, Lord, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom, knowing that there's an end. There's a hereafter, when we understand this, we can rejoice to the extent that we partake of Christ's sufferings. Everybody wants a crown, but you have to endure the cross to get there. The Apostle Paul had this mindset. Acts chapter 20, he gathers together with the leaders there at Miletus, the Ephesian elders, and he's telling them his final sermon. And in Acts 20, towards the middle, he says this. He says, I'm not sure what the future holds except that it's going to be chains and imprisonment, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which God has given to me to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, what's Paul say? He says, The future is going to be tough, but I don't care so I might have joy in my race. Interesting. It's so fun to be a Christian. It's so fun to have the future figured out. We just finished Revelation. We could start there again if you guys forgot. I could go back. It's all online. You can go look look it up. <laughs> I had a friend text me last night out of the blue. He said, the end is near. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, dude, I agree. I didn't know if it was a personal threat or Rejoice, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may be glad with exceeding joy. Verse 14, he says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. Now, he, Peter's talking specifically to a church that is being blasphemed for the name of Christ. Everyone's looking at Christians. This was a very hostile environment. You think it's hostile being a Christian now and cancel culture and you're a Bible thumper and you go to church and and you believe in creation, you believe in the Bible, you're an idiot and all these things. Back in those days, people would reproach you for the name of Christ. They would cut you up. They would take your family apart. They would imprison you. It was bad news. And so Peter here is telling this group of people, if you're reproached, guess what? He is blasphemed on their part, but he's glorified on your part at the same time. At the same time, it's ugly on the outside. It doesn't look good. It's unjust. It's wrong. It's bad on their part, but on your part, all heaven's rejoicing, okay? It's okay to suffer. It's okay to be a Christian. It's okay to have faith. It's okay to have haters. It's okay to have critics. It's okay to have people that despise you and reproach you. Again, Christianity was about to go into major persecution at this time. Opposition would turn into full-blown persecution. Here's a few things I want you to write down. I just wrote these in my notes. This isn't heaven, so don't be surprised if it feels like hell at times. You ever just be like, man, it shouldn't be so hard, you know? (laughs) This isn't heaven. This isn't heaven number two. If you live for God, eventually the culture and the government will be against you. I'm gonna say that again. If you live for God, eventually the culture and the government will be against you. And we live in America right now, the land of the free home of the brave, and equality, and equity, and all this stuff's there. Eventually, it's not just you watch. If you are reproached, he says, for the glory of God, he is glorified. Number four, or number three, don't confuse the world's hatred for you over the love of the Father for you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Like, and, I, and I say, to me, I kind of like everyone to be happy. I don't know if there's anybody else out there. I just like everyone to be happy. Even my haters and critics, I want them to be happy. And, and, and so when they're not happy at me, it, it messes with me. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a ditch you can fall into called people pleasing, the, f- the fear of man. And what he says here in, in, in verse 14 is that you're going to be blasphemed. It's okay because you're glorified at the very same time. It's upside down. The fear of man, what they think of you, what's going on around you, that's a snare. But the fear of the Lord will put you in a secure place. Wouldn't it be awesome if we all just cared more about what God thought of us than anybody else? Talk about walking in a secure place. That's Proverbs 29, by the way. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean you're doing it wrong or being punished. That's important for somebody. Right now, like, Why is it hard? Why is it difficult right now? Am I doing it wrong? No. You're in an upside-down, broken world. Fifthly and lastly, this is maybe a global reality. Some sufferings aren't personal, but they are personally experienced. Okay, the things that are going on in the world, they're not your problem, not your fault, but you are suffering because of them. He says in verse 14, if any of you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemy, but on your part, he's glorified. This idea of being reproached for Christ is interesting. I think it was Friday, we went to Pastor Tobias' house for dinner and Andrea's wife and, Grace and Colton were there, and we brought our kids over. And we were just talking, asking how they're doing. Hey, how's it going? You guys live in Newport now, and you're in the ministry now, and we're here. This is so crazy. And we were just letting Andrea and Tobias talk and just listening to them. And they were talking about various observations about living in Newport. And it was good. And one of the things that Andrea brought up, she said, you know, one of the things that we, we I guess we expected but didn't really expect to this degree and one of the things we've noted now that we've moved from Bend and live in Newport and are serving here is the spiritual warfare. Because we've been in ministry, and then we've been not in ministry. Pastor Tobias served at a church in Redmond. He's been in ministry. He's been a worship leader, pastor. And then there's seasons where you're not necessarily serving in that capacity. And to hear them say that, yeah, now it's, it's, man, it's, it's, it's heavy duty. And I kind of wanted to start crying just right there. I kind of wanted to just start crying because I've been in the ministry now for over 20 years and the, re- the reproach for Christ, not just horizontally, but, man, in, in the spiritual world. And I just want to exhort you men and women out there who are living for Christ, you're serving your family, you're serving your neighborhood, you're serving in your ministry, you're serving in one way, shape, or another, and you're like, man, <laughs> whoa, life's tough. Beyond the COVID, beyond the issues, beyond the economics and, and hyperinflation, beyond all that, life's just tough sometimes. Amen. It's tough. Don't forget. As a matter of fact, I need to get these verses done. Otherwise, I'm going to just not be a good teacher. It says verse 15. It says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. We're talking about suffering. And Peter slips this in and says, but by the way, if your suffering is due to your murdering, your thievery, your busybodying, or your evil doing, that doesn't count. Can I get an amen from somebody? Okay, that doesn't count. Sometimes your suffering is because you're an idiot. Okay? Sometimes your suffering is your fault. You're the lazy one. You're the sinful one. You're the bum. And I gotta be real careful when I say this and be real sensitive as I'm trying to, obviously, because there are some people who are suffering and there's nothing they can do about it. There are other myriads, dozens, hundreds, and millions of people who are suffering and you can do something about it. There's deadbeat moms, deadbeat dads, deadbeat men, deadbeat women who won't keep a job, won't step up, won't make the effort, won't step out, won't steward the resources that God has given to them, and they're stuck wondering why life's difficult for them. I've been that person. As a matter of fact, this portion of Scripture is near and dear to me because I was reading this very chapter, chapter 4 of Peter, on Thanksgiving Day, 1998. And it was talking about suffering, and the Lord was stirring in my heart. I was by myself. My family was in Newport. I was in Ashland. I was kind of depressed, going through the holidays, giving my life back to the Lord. As I began to process suffering, I said this in my heart, Lord, man, this year's been tough for me. Remember when I got arrested in January for fake IDs and sentenced to jail in August? And man, now I'm out, and here I am, and it's been tough. And man, Lord, you saw me when I was suffering, and I got to verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. As a matter of fact, I was reading the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. It says, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. And I remember reading that that day saying, oh, you mean I did all this? And the Lord's love was there for me. He said, yeah, you did all this, dum-dum. Yeah, you suffered, but that was your fault, Bro. And I remember, I've shared this story before, but I remember I closed my Bible and I was so devastated. I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to suffer. I wanted to serve. I wanted to do something for the Lord. My heart was being called. and I thought I'd suffered in jail. I thought I'd suffered with my two-year license suspension and $5,000 in fines and year and a half probation, all the stuff I had to deal with. And Lord says, no, no, you're an idiot. <laughs> and here's what I asked the Lord. I said, okay, Lord, what should I do? I and I literally said this. I said, Lord, I want to suffer for you. What should I do? And he said, spit that dip out of your lip had a Skull Mint dip in my, you know, I don't know how your Thanksgiving in 1998 was, mine was a little rough, <laughs> and I spit the dip out, and he says, and take that pack of Camel Wides out of your cargo pants, and set them both up on the TV, and so I did, I took my can of Chew and my cigarettes, I was doing a can of Chew and a pack of smokes every single day, and I, and the Lord told me, he said, don't ever touch them again, you want to suffer for me? We'll start with this, and I put them, I remember I said, I was like, okay, wow, that's big time. And I was excited to begin that process of dealing with my dumb dumbness and walking in the things of God. Yet he specifically says, and so in this idea of suffering, okay, sometimes it's outside, sometimes it's inside, sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's their fault. I love how Peter puts this in there. Make sure you're not going to take the easy route. Don't blame somebody else for your stuff. I wish I had more time to unpack this idea. We live in a culture right now that's loves to play the victim card, loves to blame society, loves to blame your parents, loves to blame your kids, loves to blame the government, loves to blame your neighbors. And I believe there's a huge disservice. Peter says, no, no, no. By the way, he says murder, evil doing, thievery, and meddling, okay? Meddling, which is Facebook, just so you guys know. And uh, he just puts that out there. Verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In your suffering, are you glorifying God? As a matter of fact, I got more to talk about, so we're not gonna go any further. We're never run out of time. I'm gonna end with a story, though. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. I pray that the Lord would be glorified in my life. Do you guys ever pray that prayer? Usually I have like my own definition. Lord, let my sermons be powerful. That'll bring you a glory, won't it? Lord, let our services be life-changing. Lord, let my posts on Facebook be either hilarious or insightful, whatever I'm aiming for, you know? Lord, be glorified. Be glorified in my life. And sometimes Lord says, well, how about I, how about I glorify myself through suffering in your life? Eh, uh, that's not what I meant. When I said, you can have your way in my life. I'm gonna read verse 16 again. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. If it begins with us first, what will the end be for those who do not obey the gospel? For if the righteous one is scarcely saved, what will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer, listen, according to the will of God, commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This whole idea of suffering, Peter says, judgment's gonna begin, it's gonna begin at the house of God. The reason why this world needs to be judged is because we're all upside down, everybody. And it begins with us first and the rest of the world will be judged. And so right now, God is working out that testing in you. He's testing you, he's bringing up the impurities, the imperfections, he's strengthening the things that are valuable. And it's gonna happen through suffering. Don't be surprised at the suffering, but instead, seek to glorify God. The story I'm going to tell you guys is about Horatio Spafford. Most of you know his story. In the late 1800s, Horatio Spafford, him and his wife, they had a little boy, and the little boy got sick with pneumonia and died. Later on, they were able to have four beautiful daughters. Horatio Spafford lived in Chicago, and they were preparing to take a little bit of time off from work, and they were getting on a boat all the way to Europe, and he had to stay back. You guys know his story. He had to stay back, and his wife and four daughters went on without him. As you guys know, out into the sea in the 1800s, that boat slammed into another naval boat from Germany and sank, 226 passengers died, four of which were his daughters. As the story goes, she grabbed, the mom grabbed the four daughters as the boat was going down and prayed, said, God, would you save my daughters? And if not, would you prepare them for the fate that they're about to meet? She was found later on floating on a piece of wood, rescued, nine days later, She was able to get to Europe and she sent her husband a telegram. And the telegram said, saved alone, what should I do? Later on, Horatio Spafford would take that telegram and he would frame it in his office. He made the fateful journey to see his wife in Europe as she was mourning the loss of their four children. Now they were childless. And as they passed over those dark Atlantic waters, the captain of the boat with Horatio Spafford, he went and grabbed Horatio and said, hey, this is where your daughters went down, or right where the boat sank. And it was there that Horatio Spafford penned the famous hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. It's well with my soul. Those sorrows like sea billows roll. It is well with my soul. It's well with my soul. Horatio Spafford went to be with his wife. They eventually had three more kids. One more would die of pneumonia. Eight children total, two alive, six dead. He's buried in Jerusalem through pain, through suffering, glorifying God in all things. Guys, there are macro levels of suffering big time. It doesn't happen a lot. Maybe your life will have one, two, maybe three or four macro levels, big suffering your life will be littered with micro suffering though stuff stuff and may the lord have his way in us in a broken world if judgment is going to come it's going to come to the house of the lord first you're saved i'm saved too but i'm all messed up and broken still there's still work to be done there's still glory to be revealed there's still things that God is working in me, he's working through me, and he's working for himself. Would you guys bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, we, we surrender to you. We thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your great love, Lord, that was demonstrated for us on the cross that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you, Jesus. Would you forgive us of our sins? Lord, would you help the church in 2021? What a a wild group we are. All we can do is surrender and say, Lord, use us. Use us how you see fit. Help us to suffer well. Help us to shine in the dark. Help us to grow fruitfully. Help us to be those who mature. Help us to be those who repent of sin and who serve others. Thank you for Peter's letter. Thank you for this day, Lord. Make us be now those who are hospitable to others, growing in love, good stewards over the manifold gift of God that he's given to us. And Lord, would you come quickly? Would you come quickly? Lord, would you have mercy on our nation, not just our nation, but the world, Lord, humanity. Lord, we are so messed up. Thank you so much for your word and for your spirit and for your church. Make us alive in Christ. We thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do. Bless us this week, Lord, and all those things that we put our hands to. May it be for your glory and for others' good. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen. And amen.